Good afternoon. I'm Leslie Benjamori. I am an associate professor here at SOAS University of London, where I direct the Center on Conflict Rights and Justice. We are tremendously honored today to be hosting Professor Catherine Sickink, who is the Ryan Family Professor of Human Rights Policy at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Uh, Catherine is here to speak to us tonight about her most recent book, Evidence for Hope, Making Human Rights Work in the 21st Century. Uh, Professor Sickink, you are one of the world's leading scholars of human rights, and, and you really created, shaped, and have defined and continue to redefine the field of human rights study, both in the United States and, and across the globe. Um, so it's it's a real opportunity for us to be able to speak to you, not only about your book this evening at SOAS, but also to talk to you about your life, about your work, about your scholarship, about your research in Latin America and beyond. So thank you very much for, for joining us here. It's my great pleasure. Um, I, I wanted to start maybe with a question for you about the beginning of your work on human rights. I know that you started out, I remember reading your first book on Latin America and economic policy and developmentalism in Brazil and Argentina. And then after that, you, you turned your eye to human rights. And, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what the world looked like, both as, a, as an international relations and comparative politics scholar, um, beginning to study human rights at a time when not very many people did study human rights. We take it for granted now as being one of the most important topics that people study. Um, but, but at the time, it must have looked very different to you. So I got interested in human rights very early. As an undergraduate student, I did a year-long exchange in uh, Montevideo, Uruguay, at the height of the dictatorship there in 1976. After I finished my undergraduate degree, I spent two years working at a human rights organization in Washington, D.C., called the Washington Office on Latin America. There I worked with uh, human rights activists from Argentina and from Uruguay who were coming to the United States to lobby our government about human rights violations in, the, um, in their countries. But when I decided to go to graduate school at Columbia University and arrived as a first-year PhD student, I discovered that their human rights was really not considered to be an appropriate topic for a graduate study in political science. Not only that, there was no coursework having to do with what I would later call transnational advocacy networks. Non-state actors um, let's say, NGOs and other non-state actors were, again, just not on the syllabi. That's right. It was your book, Activists Beyond Borders, Advocacy Networks and in International Politics, that really um, put this on the map. It devoted so much attention in a, in a very granular way to the, the organizations, the people, the activists that worked not only in their own countries, but across borders to bring attention to issues that really weren't getting that sort of attention from public policy makers uh, around the globe. So I think it, it really was important to so many of us um, in graduate school and, and in the world of public policy to taking much more serious note to what it was that made these groups uh, succeed when they did. It's hard to imagine now because uh, non-state actors of all sorts have become such an important topic in international relations and political science and sociology and elsewhere. Um, but it's true when Margaret Keck, uh, my co-author of Activists Beyond Borders, and I first began talking about our mutual research interests in human rights and environmental NGOs, we discovered that there was not at all an extensive literature 
in political science. And we really had to begin by making the point that these non-state advocacy networks mattered in politics. People look back now and at that work, and they maybe don't quite understand that literally we were trying to convince our colleagues that it was a legitimate, uh, appropriate, and interesting topic of conversation for international politics. It's clearly changed, right? We, we focus a lot now on non-state actors, as you've said. But still, there are, there are so many things in the real world that I think have given many people at various point in time, points in time cause for skepticism about the impact of non-state actors. And you've been very... Um, consistent in pointing out uh, why that story is is not accurate, why it's partial, and and um, why this other story really needs to be central and has has galvanized a significant amount of change. A lot of your work has been focused on Latin America. What is it about Latin America that I, I mean? It, do you see Latin America as having been at the forefront, the vanguard of human rights? Many people think that it's the United States, that it's especially Europe. Here we are in London. Um, where, you know, the European Convention on Human Rights, the European Court of Human Rights um, have been very central. But you you really take the story and its origins to Latin America. When I um, wrote Activists Beyond Borders, one of the things I said was I learned about transnational advocacy networks because these groups were coming to Washington from Chile and from Argentina and from Uruguay and elsewhere uh, to um, lobby the U.S. government to not support authoritarian regimes in their country. So if you wish, I always say I learned about what we called the boomerang and and activists beyond borders, that is how advocacy groups can try to uh, 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 bring their human rights concerns to a broader international audience and gain support. I learned about that from Argentine human rights activists. And so whenever I heard people later saying that uh, somehow the Latin Americans didn't know about human rights until Jimmy Carter told them. Say, actually, I was sitting in Washington, D.C., and these groups were coming and saying, we are concerned about human rights. Stop supporting dictatorships in uh, Latin America. Now doing the research for uh, um, my new book, Evidence for Hope, I have a much deeper historical section. And what I've really laid out is that what groups were doing in the 70s was actually connected to what Latin American jurists and diplomats were doing in the 1940s. And I've discovered that the fact that the UN Charter mentions human rights in seven places is not the result of the great powers, but actually result of of 20 Latin American states of the 50 in the San Francisco conference where the UN Charter was drafted. And there are other small states and NGOs. So even in 1945, there was already a very different coalition in favor of human rights. Later, the first intergovernmental declaration of human rights is the American Declaration. We should call it the Latin American Declaration uh, of the Rights and Duties of Man. It was passed in April 1948 eight months before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Okay. So, uh, but no one ever hears about it. No one ever talks about the fact that the Latin Americans did the first intergovernmental declaration of rights in 1948. Okay. This is uh, the 70th anniversary, you know, 2018, the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in December. Uh, and I promise you that you will hear only about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You will not hear about the American Declaration as a precursor 
to the Universal Declaration. So there's a lot of historical amnesia about the role of Latin America in general, uh, Latin America specifically, and the Global South in general in terms of the origins of the idea of the international protection of human rights. Now, I've got to assume that at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government that there won't be an absence of conversation about the indigenous origins of human <laughs> rights in Latin America, given your work. But let me ask you, uh, let me ask you more about this. Um, here at SOAS, we, we focus a lot on the Middle East, and, and there's been a concern that the boomerang, which, which you point to, which has been a very important conceptual, theoretical uh, model for, that many of us draw on to think about human rights advocacy and change, um, there's been a concern that governments across the Middle East and across much of the global South have been very effective at pushing back against the the efforts of international advocates and funders and sometimes governments to fund local civil society organizations that would like to uh, pressure their governments, um, but find themselves tarred and painted and 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 pushed back if they accept international funding that, that find themselves in a very precarious position. And so I'm, I wonder, from your insights from Latin America, um, whether this gives you some hope, um, to draw on your, your current title, Evidence for Hope, that in fact, despite the very difficult circumstances that many civil society organizations find themselves in um, across the globe, that that you know, it is a question of perhaps timing or when there's an opening. Um, that 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 model that's so central to your understanding of human rights change, especially in Latin America, has um, something to tell us about other parts of the world as well. Well, the first thing I should say is there's really nothing new about attacks on human rights organizations. Okay, so. Back again in the 1970s when I started working on this, the Argentine government called Amnesty International part of an co international communist conspiracy, and they attacked human rights groups for being part of that communist conspiracy, for being anti-national, for even being treasonous. Okay? They attacked and killed and disappeared their human rights opponents. So, you know, when I hear this today, I see this is a continuation of a long trend that repressive governments have of uh, trying to um, uh, delegitimize and dehumanize human rights activists because they find them uh, dangerous to the stability of their regime. Okay. Having said that, there's a lot of variation by region, right? And there's a lot of variation by country. And so some countries have a deep history of concern and interest in human rights, and I've laid out some of these Latin American origins. Um, the countries are not only from Latin America. So, for example, um, as you know well, one of the five important people who wrote the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the five most important people, we only hear about two of them. We only hear about Eleanor Roosevelt and René Cassin. Okay, why? Because the United States and France claim them, put up statues in their honor in Geneva, you know. And then what about the three other key writers of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Charles Malik of Lebanon, P.E. Chang of China, and Arturo Santa Cruz of Chile. Most, most people don't even know those names. And just to tell you a story, I, had a, I was teaching human rights. I had a student from Lebanon who was quite uh, knowledgeable about human rights. And I did my talk, and I showed my, ch my slide of Charles Malik as one of the five most important drafters 
of uh, the Universal Declaration. And she came in and she goes, I live on Charles Malick Boulevard in Beirut. And she said, I never knew who he was. Um, and so you go, what, what is it that's, that a Lebanese student who works on human rights and who lives on Charles Malik Boulevard never would have been told about his role? So there's a variety of reasons I think he, you know, Charles Malik was a, a, a Lebanese Christian who at the time were a majority group in Lebanon. So uh, he got his PhD at Harvard. Okay, so I think there was the notion, ah, oh, he's not authentic. He's not an authentic Lebanese because he got a PhD at Harvard. So you have this very brilliant man uh, who somehow his contributions are discredited. But when we think about it, Eleanor Roosevelt wasn't an authentic representative of U.S. culture either. At the United States at the time was deeply racist and deeply sexist. So here we have this woman who was actually worked on behalf of racial equality and gender equality in her time. She was, she was very exceptional within the United States. And yet we, ex we, you know, we don't have any trouble with Eleanor Roosevelt claiming her today. And no one says, well, she wasn't authentic because she didn't represent majorities in her country. So there seems to be some double... Um, uh, what's the right word? Uh, sort of a double standard for activists who come from the global south in terms of being able to discredit them for not being authentic. I think that's very interesting. And, and one possibility is that they're not only discredited by the international, but that they might be discredited within their own countries because they're seen as part of, um, you know, some people argue that human rights is seen as a discourse that emerges out of the West. Clearly, this is not your view. Um, but that those who who adopt that discourse domestically should be discredited because they're effectively agents of the West and they, they're not indigenous. So is, is part of the story here that, you know, it's perhaps the Lebanese who aren't accepting and embracing those founders, or is that is is it really something that's you know it's it's the international apparatus, it's the West that's not really recognizing and giving due credit? It's a really complicated story, and I don't know all the pieces. I can tell you that in Latin America, during the dictatorships in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, it was not in the interest of these repressive dictators to recall to their populations the the protagonism that Latin American jurists had played in the creation of the international human rights regime. It was very convenient, very politically necessary to say, oh, human rights, that's Jimmy Carter who's imposing his inappropriate, you know, uh, uh, ideas upon us, rather than say, no, Latin American diplomats were at the forefront of the creation uh, in the 40s of the international human rights regime, because that would have discredited their regimes and their own practices. Okay, so. One thing that's going on is the self-interested misuse of human rights history to the benefit of repressive regimes. Then there's something more complicated going on, too. So let's talk about P.E. Chang, who was the, the Chinese uh, person who um, ha, uh, was one of the five most important persons uh, writing the Universal Declaration. P.E. Chang was a university professor who lost his job when the Japanese invaded China. He came to the United States as an exile. He studied at Columbia University and was a brilliant. He was involved in theater and literature. In any case, he was later the delegate, the Chinese delegate of the nationalist government. Okay, so one thing is the Chinese communists, of course, never wanted to claim P.E. Cheng as their own because he was there for the nationalist government, even though he was a intellectual, really, not a, a politician. So P.E. Cheng is responsible 
I just read a wonderful article by a, coll a colleague from Columbia University about the history of P.E. Chang. He was responsible for the fact that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights mentions neither God nor nature as the, f as the foundations of human rights, which is actually very important. And I, I know that you're so interested in religion and human rights. Uh, and so it's quite exceptional, in fact, that the Universal Declaration doesn't mention God or nature, which is kind of the alternative, the Western alternative to God was nature, right, in terms of the natural rights discourse. And, and it, that it doesn't do so because P.E. Chang said, no, this, this is a universal declaration, and it's not true to our Chinese tradition to think of the origins of human rights either in terms of a God or, uh, or nature. Um, and so once again, I didn't even know that. I discovered that a month ago reading a new research. Do you think that uh, do you think it's helped the cause of human rights to keep it separate, at least at the level of formal mm -hmm. language from religion, from the notion of a higher being, to keep it secular? Um, do you think that's helped its universal appeal, or do you think it's been a hindrance? I agree with P. E. Chang's position that he took back in 1948 when they were drafting. If it was to be a universal document, it was either going to have to name all the different ways the different regions and religions would refer to uh, you know, their, their, their beliefs, or was going to have to just cut that piece. And I think cutting a reference to this kind of Western formulation, or your God or, or nature, was the right thing to do. I want to take you um, a little bit closer to home, to the United States. You're a scholar of many things. Latin America is the region that you know best, but you've also written extensively on politics and human rights advocacy um, and some of the setbacks in the United States, most especially surrounding um, the torture memos that followed the uh, U.S. invasion um, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And... And you were, my reading, one of the people who came out and said that the politics and the advocacy and the aftermath of that suggest um, the strength, not the weakness, of the international human rights regime. Uh, is that is that accurate? Is that a? Can you say more about you, you know your what your takeaway is or your understanding of the threat that the United States presented in that particular period of its history to human rights? Um. Well, first, I say I have a, uh, a forthcoming article in the perspective on politics, some research I've done on torture, U.S. torture policy during the Bush administration with my co-author, Avril Schmidt. And we look at the impact that U.S. torture policy had on other countries in the world. And uh, one of the things that we find is that the U.S. torture policy led to a persistent worsening of torture, not in all the world and all countries, but in the 40 countries that collaborated actively with the U.S., the RDI, Rendition, Detention, and Interrogation Program. But in the process of doing that, we also look at how we, we delve deeply into WikiLeaks, for example, to see what the response was of other countries. And it's very interesting because you have, you have three different kind of types of response. But one type of response was countries that really pushed back, that really pushed back. And um, 
you know, for example, I was just in Shannon Airport um, two days ago coming into London. And I recall that one of the stories was that, you know, the, the United States said it was going to land flights, secret flights in Shannon Airport. And people weren't paying attention. But when it was discovered that these were secret flights carrying essentially disappeared people to black sites, uh, they were notified that there would be inspection of U.S. airplanes coming through Shannon Airport. So there was that kind of pressure. I have a colleague, Alberto Mora, at the uh, Kennedy School, who was um, the counsel for the Navy during the Bush administration. He was one of the very courageous people who pushed back against torture from inside the Bush administration. He tells stories of going to meetings where he gets surrounded by people who are poking him in the chest and pushing him back in the corner saying, we cannot collaborate with you if you continue this torture policy. We cannot hold joint exercises with you. Something must be done. You both have to stop. You are imperiling our bilateral or multilateral relationship with this policy. So there was a lot of behind the scenes pushback that was very important. It did not lead the U.S. government to change its policy during the Bush administration. Okay. But a couple things did happen, as you know. Jack Goldsmith, when he came into uh, the position of the Office of Legal Counsel, read the torture memos. Jack Goldsmith was a conservative legal theorist, right? He read the legal memos. He went, oh, my goodness. You know, are we out of our minds? This cannot stand. Because they were such a bad law. They were such completely unsustainable interpretations of international law as regards to torture and as regards to Geneva Conventions, that he insisted that those memos be, uh, be deserted as a, as a basis of policy. So there was pushback from within, and there was pushback from without. That didn't change Bush administration policy during the Bush administration, but I think it um, did uh, limit some of the effects that it had. And within civil society, of course, mm -hmm. the actors that, you, that you've spent so much time thinking about historically, regionally, globally, the American Civil Liberties Union. So I, I, I think you're right. The, 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 num the amount of activism was quite extraordinary. That activism continues, and I had the, <laughs> I won't say the pleasure. Um, we had to protest John Yoo at the American Political Science Association meetings in San Francisco last fall. You know, so the American Political Science Association is pieces associated with American Political Science Association are still inviting John Yu, the author of most of the torture memos, who's a law professor at Berkeley, to come and be on panels at APSA. And so uh, a group of people organized a pro very silent protest. We just stood up, hold our, held our signs, and it didn't interrupt the discussion. Um, but the, you know, the, the pushback goes on. And it, it's it's interesting you say that one guest that we've interviewed here in the studio was Lisa Anderson, mm -hmm. um, we, and we spoke to Professor Anderson, who you know well, yes. about academic freedom. Mm -hmm. And it's a difficult issue, isn't it? The author of the torture memo, um, an academic conference where mm -hmm. many things need to be discussed. It's an issue that we are experiencing and debating across the United Kingdom with right. the prevent legislation. What What is it that makes it? No longer okay to give somebody a platform. Very difficult issue. Um, so the, we thought, the, the organizers of this protest thought very carefully about those issues, right? Uh, and that was why the decision was to do an entirely silent protest, to not interrupt anyone's speech, 
but nevertheless to make our views known. So torture is a crime. It's a crime under international law, but it's a crime under domestic law. The, when, we ra when the United States ratified the Convention Against Torture, it implemented the uh, prohibition on torture in a domestic criminal statute where torture carries a criminal penalties in the United States. Now, we have not prosecuted criminally anyone. In other words, they, those trials have moved ahead but not prospered, okay? And they've been blocked in the courts mainly because our prosecutors in the United States are political appointees and depend on the attorney general, okay? So in this circumstance where the act of advocating tortures, you know, could be, could be found to be by a powerful person like John Yoo, who's in the most powerful legal position in the U.S. government and justifies and permits torture to, to occur, um, that should have been handled in our judicial system. When okay. President Obama took office, he made it clear that the United States would not be torturing anymore. But he also made a decision not to pursue prosecutions. Um, what was your reaction to that? So my reaction was part of a big research project that led to my book, The Justice Cascade, which looked at human rights prosecutions all around the world. And I heard President Obama making the same statement that governments all over the world has made, let's uh, move, turn the page forward, not look backwards, right? And so it's, a, it's an understandable uh, initial uh, reaction, but it is um, a mistake. And I know it's a mistake because countries throughout Latin America and elsewhere in the world that have held human rights prosecutions have improved human rights practices compared to countries that have not. Um, and countries far, with far more fragile political systems and judicial systems have managed to hold their own leaders accountable for human rights crimes. The United States somehow felt we are too exceptional, we are too fragile, we cannot hold people accountable. And it was simply, I think it was, it was simply an error. Um, the United States uh, judicial system and federal courts have shown themselves very capable of handling these issues with due process and with great seriousness. And to not have permitted the U.S. judicial system to do that uh, was, a, was, a, was a grave mistake. I'm wonder, I want to ask you one more question on this, because I think it brings us into perhaps my last question for you, which is about the, the modern, the contemporary politics in the United States. But, uh, but on President Obama, some people think that uh, the current politics in the United States are in part um, a response to the fact that America had a black president, mm -hmm. that m many people were mobilized around uh, an agenda of hate towards that. And I guess there is a question. Um, it, it wasn't just President Obama saying no prosecutions. It was also America's first African-American president deciding not to prosecute a white Republican set of individuals um, from the other party. And, and so it's possible, or I guess it's a question for you. Is it possible that had he moved forward, it, the backlash could have been different than than for you know a white president, a white male president, or a white male Republican. So that, in other words, the the question of partisanship, one party going after another, could be seen that way. And the, in the particular context of an African American president, do you think that um, uh, that made it more complicated? 
One, I completely agree with you that part of what we're seeing in the political world today in terms of the rise of some of these authoritarian populists, not just in the United States, but around the world. I say authoritarian with regard to Trump in terms of someone with, with deep authoritarian instincts, right? Um, is a result of backlash against uh, uh, many developments in the world that are perceived as very threatening. Okay. And whether it be the advance of women, whether it be advance of racial minorities, whether it be advances of LGBTI, uh, uh, these are seen uh, in, in certainly in, in more traditional groups in the United States as very threatening developments. Okay. And my colleague at the Harvard Kennedy School, Pippa Norris, has, has consulted lots and lots of polling on this issue. And as she, you know, she says, it's, it's clear that it's the cultural issues more than the economic issues that drove the Trump voters. Let me say a second piece, though, and that is the, 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 the less discussed issue uh, is not just the, the Trump voters who went out to vote. It's all the voters we might call progressive voters who failed to vote in the last election. Okay, and my campaign right now is to talk about the responsibility to vote, the civic responsibility to vote, and that the importance that uh, people in our country, for example, students at Harvard, <laughs> only 49% of eligible voters at Harvard um, uh, voted, um, and uh, the uh, uh, to 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 really realize that we you know we have a responsibility also for what happens in our government and it's not enough for people to 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 fail to vote and then to go out and protest right it's fine to protest I'm all in favor of protest but you know you also have your civic responsibility to vote and you may not be happy everyone says oh the Democratic Party is to blame because they didn't offer me candidates that I can embrace so I stayed home and that makes me pure no that makes you um, uh, you know, not n not doing your civic responsibility. Right. Earlier this week, I was part of a conversation at the British Academy about the current state of human rights, and and I think that the conversation was similar to the debate that we're seeing across the UK, across Europe, and I imagine in the United States about what is it that are why is human rights in the state that it is? What is the state of human rights? And and more specifically, what are the current challenges and which are most significant? And the, and the conversation was, you know, some people saying it's the rise of China and China's disrespect, blatant disrespect domestically for a number of freedoms that are central to human rights. Others saying it's the uh, Europe throwing up its borders and withdrawing from its clear commitment to human rights, seemingly withdrawing. Uh, Many people think, though, that it's the United States uh, since the election of Donald Trump and the contemporary politics and, and the retreat from a language of a moral authority, a, a commitment, um, a spoken commitment to human rights, ex except for very exceptionally and specifically mm -hmm. uh, with respect to perhaps Iran and North Korea, where people see human rights as being instrumentalized. Um, but when Donald Trump talks to Duterte, the leader of the Philippines, who's responsible for thousands of death in his de thousands of deaths in his war on drugs, we see no mention of human rights. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted, in closing, um, and perhaps as a prelude to your your public lecture this evening, we're expecting several hundred people to turn up to listen to you speak about the evidence for hope in human rights. I wonder. What do you make of the current contemporary challenges to human rights and, and especially to the, the Amer America's role in this? 
So I've been very critical of the Trump administration human rights policy. I've written various op-eds against things exactly like this tendency to embrace dictators like Duterte, right? At the same time, in Evidence for Hope, I write a longer history of uh, human rights developments and uh, improvements over the long term. So the point I'm trying to make is that human rights has come slowly. Human rights change is always a result of slow, long processes of struggle. It's the result not of governments handing human rights to their citizens on a, on a platter, but of citizens many times oppressed citizens or citizens in repressed countries demanding their rights and succeeding through decades of struggle to secure them, right? So what that means, one, is that people should never be complacent and think that, oh, we have rights, so, like, we don't have to vote because things are fine in the United States. You know, that's Complacency is not good because complacency, if people don't continue to struggle and demand and press for rights, they can lose their rights. Right? Um, but the second thing is I'm worried about too much despair right now. So people like Eric Posner say in his book, The Twilight of Human Rights Law, say there has been no marked decrease in human rights violations. The law doesn't work. We should accept that fact and move on. That is patently false. Using the best data that I can use, and I assemble a lot of it uh, in my book, Evidence for Hope, I say there's been actually some areas of retrogression, refugee policy in, uh, you know, refugee situation in the world, and especially in Europe, questions of inequality, for example, the rise of these authoritarian populists. But there have been many other areas of uh, progress in the world that we shouldn't forget, okay? And, and I, I have a a lot of uh, data assembled, but in terms of dramatic developments around women's rights, developments around rights of, of uh, racial minorities, LGBT communities, people with disabilities, but also decline in genocide and politicide in the world, the, um, the incredible um, um, increase of number of countries that have abolished the death penalty for example, my favorite examples is when Amnesty International started working on the death penalty in 1977, only 17 countries had abolished the death penalty in law. Today, that number is almost 100 countries. And if we count the number of countries that abolished the death penalty in law and in practice, it's 140 countries. Practice means that they haven't used an execution for 10 years. So it's not a, not a trivial issue. And yet people tend to always, and, and there's a lot of cognitive reasons for this, that we have negativity bias, we have recency bias, we have availability bias. All of those make us focus on the, the recent, bad, available in the news things that are happening. And they make us ignore longer historical trends. So my job, I feel, is to call attention to some of these longer historical trends so people remember that there have been great advances that have, as, as a result of struggle and to not sort of give up because of these very negative recent things that are happening. Professor Sinking, uh, this has been an extraordinary conversation. I've valued it a great deal. I know that our listeners will be deeply appreciative, and I especially look forward to, to your lecture tonight. Thank you for visiting us here at SOAS. Thanks for the invitation.